Back in the day, Australia's newspapers were the go-to place for fiction. But the stories can be hard to find, and newspapers don't last forever. So this is where we come in. I'm Dr Rod Lamberts, and this is To Be Continued, a podcast from the Australian National University that extracts literary gold from Australia's newspapers in the 19th and early 20th century. Our old newspapers are treasure troves of forgotten literature, crammed full of stories offering glimpses of a past, both familiar and foreign. Have you ever seen a ghost? No? Well then, I've been more fortunate. The ghost I saw was a most unromantic one. A ghost proclaiming a foul, unnatural murder, appearing in the solitude of the Australian bush. The story you've just listened to is the very beginning of a, of a tale from the Leader newspaper from Saturday the 26th of February 1870. It's called A Bush Ghost Story. And the reason we're talking about this is in this episode of To Be Continued, we are getting into Australian Gothic horror. Now, like you, maybe, I'd never heard of this before, but luckily we have an expert. So I'm joined today by Claire Burnett, who's a PhD candidate at Griffith University. Claire, what are you studying? <laughs> hey, Rod. Uh, yeah, I imagine that could come across a little bit weird uh, if you haven't ever encountered it before. Uh, uh, yeah, love it. This is my area of expertise completely. I focus on Gothic fiction in Australian newspapers. Uh-huh. So how do you do this? I mean, it sounds to me like this could be an infinitely long project for you. Oh, this is a lifetime situation. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's a huge job and just the absolute massive database that Troven to be continued have amassed. Like over the past sort of 18 months while I've been doing my research project, I think I read, uh, and this number is seared into my brain, about 1,472 oh, wow. different pieces of fiction from Australian newspapers. And that doesn't even scratch the surface of what is available on these databases. So we we are we've referred to there there are three stories that kind of inspired this episode, and they um I suppose they have some similarities and differences, and people can of course listen to these in their entirety separately to this episode. So we sort of have an appendix episode for each of the uh, to be continued podcasts. Let's talk about one first. And let's start with this bush ghost story. At last. Intelligence of the tardy vehicles arrived, but far different from that anticipated. Instead of the teams themselves, there arrived the news that a foul, diabolical murder had been committed. So there were bush rangers. They were all well-mounted, carried each a pair of revolvers and had their features concealed by thick black crepe. There's a woman being murdered. He presented his revolver, told the female that he would send a message to Daniel O'Connell and fired. The shot took effect and the courageous woman fell back wounded in the stomach. And then uh, what I described, maybe I've done this wrongly, a a travelling salesman kind of fella ends up being inexplicably drawn or his horse gets inexplicably drawn to the site of this murder. 
Looking ahead, I saw a strange light, too dim for a fire, more like the reflex of a limelight thrown onto a stage. There's notions of belief or disbelief in faith, the occult and science. I endeavoured to place my hand upon her shoulder, but although the figure remained before me, my hand encountered no obstruction. In fact, it seemed to sink into the woman's body. And her ghost points to a, a perpetrator. At this moment, the female figure under the tree raised her arm and pointed in the direction of Malden. And then he goes and reports it to the police and they end up finding the guys who were brought to justice, deathbed confessions or rather execution, pre-execution confessions. Found guilty and executed before they were launched into eternity. The actual murderer confessed his crime and the others, though denying their guilt on that occasion, confessed to having more than once spilled human blood. So many things going on here, right? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Is this story typical, if there is such a thing, of Australian Gothic of the period, like late 1800s we're talking here, early 1900s? It absolutely takes cues. So I think the ghost story as like a sort of sub-genre of the Gothic and of horror in general um, is something that has really lent itself well to the Australian experience. Uh-huh. Um so it actually has a, it takes a lot of cues from a much earlier story called The Ghost Upon the Rail by a guy called John Lang. It's a fascinating one. So like we talked about, um, when you are writing a ghost story, you are looking at these anxieties. You're looking at what is a ghost to that society that, that, that it's being written for and, and in and about. And I think in that respect, it's absolutely fascinating that we have developed these ghost stories for Australian audiences. Ghosts tend to lend themselves quite well to colonial preoccupations and and anxieties. Right. We hear the term gothic horror. Now, I think for many people, certainly for me, maybe I'm speaking out of turn, gothic and horror are almost synonymous. So what what do you mean? What what makes gothic horror different to other? I guess you can be within the horror genre without being gothic, Mm. but gothic tends to be horror. Right. Um... Gothic is very much rooted in the 1800s, so from Horace Walpole writing The Castle of Otranto at the end of the 1700s, all the way through that period. So it is really characterised by sort of fragmented narratives, a fascination with immorality and insanity and irrationality. It's an aesthetic, uh, Gothic very much so, um, related to fear and terror and haunting. Mm -hmm. So Australian Gothic. Yes. Is the difference just it's drier <laughs> or there are gum trees? I mean, what's where do we go from there? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, and that's like such a, that's an interesting question and something that people have really been grappling with, like, can Australian fiction, fiction about Australia be gothic? We don't have the history or the infrastructure mm. or potentially the cultural clout to support a tradition like gothic. We don't have the castles. We don't have the ruins. Um we don't have like the creepy nuns rocking around and on all the things that made 18th and 19th century Gothic, Gothic. Um, there was a chap called Frederick Sinnett. He was a journalist, and a literary critic. He was born in about 1830. 
uh, and he said specifically that there could be no castle of Otranto built in Australia in his time. That was him saying, you know, this as a genre, as a mode, cannot flourish here. We don't have the anxieties. We don't have the cultural baggage uh. required for this type of genre. Um, and I think that's a really fascinating perspective, given that even our early writers, Barbara Bainton, Marcus Clark, they're considered to have very much gothic elements. So um, there's a chap called A.A. A. Phillips. He was a theorist of Australian cultural identity. And he basically said that stories about Australia are the literature of nightmare. <laughs> that sounds like a big value judgment. I know. That's what he said. <laughs> yeah. I know like a lot of these early works were realist, so they didn't have those supernatural elements that we do associate with the gothic and, and sometimes horror. Mm-hmm. But they were tales of convicts, of sexual and racial violence. They were already horrifying. They already had these building blocks of what we can consider the gothic today. Right. And then they also had all these traditions from Europe and America to draw from, as well as indigenous um, traditions and beliefs. So ghost stories, monsters, spirits, the bunyip, they could and they did make that their own. Right. So, I mean, you mentioned earlier on this notion, this critique, that it was a lack of cultural baggage in Australia, for example, on this. Um, <laughs> I'm kind of intrigued by that. Are we were we too fresh at the time? Were you considered too pure, pristine and innocent, at least uh, European Australians or Western style Australians to be able to do gothic and horror properly? Like, do you have to have a long history? Is is that the critique? Yeah. I mean, that is basically what they said. They were like, you, you can't do this. You don't have the infrastructure, the history that Europeans have, or even Americans have at this point. Yeah. Because we had people like Nathaniel Hawthorne and Edgar Allan Poe over in the US writing gothic stories. They were American gothic. And actually, I think it's more part of the concept of like the cultural cringe. I don't know if you've come across that before, Rod. Uh, no, I'm an Australian. We never see cultural cringe. <laughs> so, and that was A.A. A. Phillips. He came up with the idea that people felt cringy about their culture because it wasn't as austere uh. or highbrow as like what they would do in Europe. But people are like, no, that's not the case. We have these amazing writers, the Clarks, the Baintons, writing about Australia as it was and as they wanted it to be. And that in itself develops a really rich sort of historical and cultural mind from which you can draw, from which you can obtain all these fantastic ideas about what it means to be an Australian, what it means to be part of this colony and part of this empire, but also trying to sort of come up with this identity of your own. So that in itself, I mean, Gothic has a lot of focus on identity, who you are, what do you want to be, what can you not be under the sort of social rules of the time and conventions of the time. So in actual fact, as we've seen, and a lot of um, scholars have worked on this over the past sort of 10 to 20 years, there was this culture and we could have, we did have a lot of things to mind. Everybody has anxieties. There's always something could go wrong. Uh, uh, That's what Gothic's about. It's about undermining and finding and problematizing and exploring those issues and those anxieties. And you might say that Australia in that time was innocent and pure and uh, terra nullis and all that. It wasn't. It absolutely was not. (laughs) I think that's so interesting, this idea that that you need the idea that the anxieties aren't the right anxieties or, you know, you're, you're too fresh to have anxieties like we're children or something. I think that's quite fascinating. But I do like also just a little comment in there when you're talking about, you know, people saying we'd lacked the infrastructure. It makes it sound so bloody mundane. You know, if you want to do good horror, you need Like we haven't got enough train lines. Yeah, yeah, you don't have enough sewage. <laughs> it sounds, it's like, that doesn't sound very exciting. 
Now, all these stories touch on a number of themes, and one that's really significant here, especially as a feature of one of the stories where the ghost was a murdered woman, is it fair to say this is the way women were represented in society? Do these stories reflect that accurately? So women in fiction in Australian society have been largely underrepresented in scholarly thought. So we talk about bushrangers and we talk about these kind of like really hyper-masculine areas and spheres. And because of the mateship and the camaraderie and this idea of bravado, um, you know, uh, in the Australian ghost story, um, the chap who doesn't believe his mate and is like, oh, I can do this. I'm not scared. I'll go into this hut and sleep there tonight. There is a sense that um, that identity, which is intrinsically tied to Australian identity, the the ochre, the crocodile dundee, the blokey mateship, lads having a beer type thing, that very much has its roots in this sort of period. Um, from the start, as you might expect, Australian didn't have as many women. Lots of the convicts that were brought over were men. And that stayed the, the case for quite a long time, probably a few decades at the start of Australia uh, as it was colonized by settlers mm. and convicts. So women were kind of like, oh, what do we do with them? How do we portray them? What, when did they start right. to come into this Australian story? There's, there seems to be that sort of like, what do we do with them type of thing. But there's been some really fantastic work. Uh, Kay Schaefer wrote a, a, a wonderful book called Women in the Bush. And it talks about how the concept of Australian identity and mateship inevitably cuts out women because they aren't part of this bush-ranging mm. rural lifestyle, when in actual fact, as we've conceived even from these stories, women held a prominent role in stations and um, in trade uh, as merchants, lots of other roles that they played in a country that was still growing, that didn't necessarily have an, a surplus of population. So they needed to take on roles that there might not necessarily be enough people for. Um, but yeah, because the lack of women in the early days of Australia made it sort of a question mark, like how do we fit women into what we perceive to be our nation? Um, and it makes you notice much more when they are mentioned, um, how they're portrayed and things like that. And uh, it's funny getting the, um, the Baldrow's wife, I think that the one, does, obviously she suddenly gets murdered. But he basically yes. says that how gobby she is, yeah. how she just wouldn't shut up. Yeah, yeah, it, it's, it's and not that's very why she thinly veiled. Well, if you weren't being what... so mouthy and nasty, you'd probably be alive now. <laughs> it's pretty, pretty clear. Yeah, so you, you get a bit of that as well, because obviously um, the existence of women yeah. impinges on this mateship. Like, you can't be part of this inner circle of men. So they do have sort of, a sort of almost dismissive and patronising views of women in a lot of respects. But then we also have some really prominent female writers. Lots of them were, like Barbara Bainton, very famous in her own right. And then we also, in Australian sort of uh, newspapers and, and fiction in general, brought a lot of female authors from the US and um, Britain over. So I was reading your notes, and one thing that really jumped out at me was the amount of alcohol and the amount of stories that revolve around alcohol or have alcohol as a pivotal feature. Would you say alcohol really is a feature or is it just a background element? Does it play a leading role in these stories? Is that common? It, you know, it very strangely is. It, it, not necessarily a leading role, but there are certain ghost stories. Um, there's a fantastic one called The Ghost of Bamboo Gully or The Headless Woman. Mm -hmm. And effectively, a chap gets inebriated and thinks he sees a headless ghost. Turns out he was just a little bit off his trolley and... Um, <laughs> 
And it was just like a weird looking tree or something. <laughs> That's um, a terrible ending though, isn't if, it? Sorry, I was drunk no, and it was, was a weird absolutely tree. absolutely shocking. <laughs> um, but it funnily enough does, because it was something that people's lives really centered around. It was something that, that it was, it was a, a method of escapism when you were doing some really hard work yeah. stage, as a station hound, as a drover, as a shepherd. It was part, and, and it sort of is funnily enough tied hand in hand with stories with smaller bits of fiction like this. We would have uh, a very strong oral tradition yep. in Australia in that period. So people would take these newspapers out when they were um, droving or looking after sheep or just working around these huge stations. And if they had stay out overnight, they would light a fire and they would read them to each other from the newspaper. And that, of course, involved liquor. Of course. More often than not, <laughs> obviously. Um, so, yeah, while probably not a, a prominent feature or a narrative sort of part of the mechanics of that, very much mentioned regularly in these sorts of stories. That's interesting, too. You mentioned um, just in that response there this this importance of oral traditions. And, and one of the stories, the, the Australian, another an Australian ghost story, The Bull. Old Thompson is one of the very oldest inhabitants. He provides vastly entertaining when you manage to draw him out about the old days. Starts very much with um, focusing on a, um, a spinner of yarns, yeah, a, a guy who was infamous and famous for his ability and the intrigue people felt when he told stories. The old man would seat himself beside the fireplace, careless whether a fire burnt there or not, with his head thrown back and a particularly disreputable cutty pipe between his lips and spin yarns by the hour. And wonderful yarns they were sometimes. The idea of storytelling and, and the yarn spinners, very much a part of Australian culture from its early days in terms of sort of the European settlers, as well as the Indigenous side of things. So, you know, it was fascinating. And so many of these stories start off with Almost like a bookend of, I'm going to tell you this story today. And then it's up to you whether you believe me kind of thing. And then you finish it with, um, you know, so leave it up to you. Do you believe this or do you not? And it was just a fascinating way to create that finite story, you know, wrap it into a nice package so you can just publish it as short fiction, but also tap into those traditions as well. Oh, it's a classic shape, isn't it? You know, I look, you decide at the end, I'm going to tell you a story. I, I quite liked it, but you know, make your own, make up your own mind at the end. Yeah. Um, that's very interesting. I, I, I'm kind of curious. So there, there are some other issues, or rather, I, I suppose, elements to the stories that come up a lot. So we mentioned briefly this story that had the guy who was a storyteller at the beginning. It was about ten years ago. I remember I had a lot of men in the house from all the stations round about. But while they thought they saw a ghost, a horrid white thing with flaming eyes and coal black horns rose slowly from the grave as a vampire might and hovered like a vulture. It wasn't all quite what it seemed. Next morning, there was a loud knock at my door at about six and then the mystery was revealed. I had shot my prize Hereford bull But the story along the way to get there was quite detailed and it brings up many sort of themes and the ones that kind of struck me bring up these issues of anti-authoritarianism you know outlaws and this kind of trope of Australians being dirtbags rebels etc 
This again seems to be quite common in our stories about ourselves from that era. Is that, or is this particularly strong in these kinds of horror traditions? Oh, absolutely. I think that the Australian frontier, for want of a better word, really took a lot of its cues from the United States, yeah. uh, from that frontier life, that Wild West, the eternal fight between cowboys and Indians and things like that. And they really tried to apply it to their own experiences. And occasionally it worked and sometimes they found that it was lacking, you know, how they got there, who they were, was very different to an American cowboy. Yeah. Um, but really the Bush Ranger, that is an iconic figure in Australian history as much as the cowboy or the outlaw in America, as much as the highwayman in the UK. So we have this weird obsession with sort of lawlessness and outlaws, mm. lots of it imported, as we've mentioned. Uh, and I think it's a fascinating one as well. Lots of studies have been done on the sort of demographic makeup of these early settlers at the convicts and then their sort of first generation after that. We've got a lot of Irish immigrants coming in. We've got a lot of people that were sent over, transported for petty crimes that really didn't require seven years in a penal colony. And there was an idea of that anti-authoritarianism and that was part of this fabric, this cloth that was being woven about what it meant to be an Australian. And I think people are really confused about it and really unsure about how to deal with it. Like, we shouldn't be romanticising an outlaw, should we? Yeah. Um, but also, we love Ned Kelly. Yeah. So it's a really complex relationship between what we want to be and uh, what we would like to be and how we want to see ourselves and the reality of the situation and how we perceive that as well uh, uh, from a sort of historical perspective. It kind of gives us license to, to paint a picture of us as being very distinct from our um, European parents, so to speak, I suppose. You know, no, we're definitely not them. And even if we were, we're, we're going to kick against that as hard as we can. But <laughs> Yeah, exactly. But does it, does it, it run so strongly through these stories any more than it would in the, the you mentioned romance and, and other types of stories and fictions that would have been going through the newspapers? Is it Does it appear to be stronger in these horror stories with just really underlying all of them? I would absolutely say so, because I find that a lot of the um, romance in particular, it's in, almost indistinguishable. Like, you couldn't tell if it was a drawing room in sort of Sussex or a drawing room in Sydney. Mm. You have no idea. Like you might have a place name and you might have some slightly identifying, oh, this is in Australia type thing to sort of place you within that. But it was really within Gothic and ghost stories that, you could really take out and explore, like we talked about earlier, yeah. take out and explore these sometimes problematic things that, like the Bushranger and the history and the perception of the Bushranger, that you just wouldn't do in a romance. Um, you might <laughs> get like a lady saved from a Bushranger or something like that. But that's that's all you get. That's all you get in terms of it. And he, that could be anybody. That could be a highwayman. That could be a robber. That could be any figure. Um, it's just a setup for the romance rather than yeah. um, to be explored itself. So speaking of touchy subjects, we really can't have a conversation about this without bringing up the whole politics, interrelationships, attitudes towards, et cetera, Indigenous people at the time and the way they're represented. Um, Absolutely. Obviously, we could come up with many examples of how poorly they've been represented in these stories. Um, but can I ask both about that, but also are there positive representations where you could actually say this is quite reasonable or true to form or where they're painted as the heroes or the better person within the, the tales? Absolutely. I mean, don't get me wrong, they're on the whole portrayed horribly. Yeah. Um, but in some stories, there are sort of 
tiny slithers of hope where Indigenous peoples, where Aboriginal peoples are portrayed sympathetically, sometimes even empathetically. Mm. A lot of these stories are open about interracial relationships that existed in this period. Really? Yeah, there's a fantastic story called Lucy the Tasmanian Girl, and it tells it's a sad story, it's a tragedy, yeah. but it does tell the story of an interracial marriage in Tasmania. Um, and there are allusions to that throughout some of these stories. They're not often, don't get me wrong, um, yeah. but they're there. But what's more sort of prominent is a discussion of and a recognition of how these Europeans really heavily relied on the knowledge of Indigenous peoples to just exist and to survive in what they considered to be a very harsh and unforgiving environment. So you'll see the trackers throughout a lot of stories, even film today, um, discuss the role of um, Indigenous trackers. And they do feature a bit more prominently in a lot of these stories. But like we say, you know, they are never, not in as much as I've read, the main character. Right. Uh, they're sometimes portrayed really poorly. So, did you um, say literally never the main character? There's literally never a, an Indigenous I've not, protagonist? I've not come across it. Okay. Not to say that that's not the case yeah, yeah. At, at all, um, but I would say exceptionally rare if it if that was the case. Yeah, right. God, uh, look, I... I shouldn't be surprised. It's just, it's still just disappointing. Like maybe we could look to our past to see some better ways to do things, but yeah, maybe not. Um, yeah. And another phenomenon that seems to come up, particularly in a story where basically a guy's bought a property, a city slicker, it seems like to me, has bought a property. One Christmas, I received an invitation to stay a few weeks at a schoolfellow's farm up in the north of Gippsland. So I packed up my traps with alacrity and in less than 12 hours presented myself at Jack Draper's farm. There's a shed or a small shack on the property that he refuses to go into. The place is said to be haunted and what I have seen is calculated to make me so. Sometimes in the darkness of a still clear night, the most appalling yells and shrieks comes from that hut. Once, I peeped in through the chinks of the door, determined to investigate the matter. I saw in one corner of the hut a great white figure with two eyes gleaming through the gloom. It uttered some unearthly words, gave a scream, and I cleared. And someone's visiting him who says, that's ridiculous, I'm going to go and check it out myself. I said it was very strange, but expressed utter disbelief in any ghost connivance. And it turns out to be, what, a parrot and a sheet that's hanging up and that freaks everyone out. There, he said, there's your ghost. This bird was the great pet of his murdered master. And on his death, nightly returned through a hole in the roof of the place, which had been his home. His appearance, combined with the long draped sheet above which he perched, gave rise to the supposition that it was a ghost while his screams and the utterance of the few words he had learned to say were taken for the mutterings of a being from the netherworld. <laughs> Total letdown at the end, wasn't it? I was like, oh, is that all it is? I think it's, uh, it is funny, though. I'll give him that. You know, it's, it's always great. a bloody parrot. We're, and he's laughing about it at the end, and yeah. you're like, oh, you got me. But this one, this one um, again, I'm... I'm 
you know, nicking your notes, but this, that's why you're here. Cause you know what you're talking about. I'm just here to, you know, get you to the, um, <laughs> this notion of the landscape itself, almost as a character or as a, as a significant feature of these stories. So the Australians, the Australia's landscape of isolation, desolation, etc. I mean, how does that interweave or how does that play a, a feature in these stories? Yeah, I mean, that's a fascinating one because a lot of scholars have looked at Australian literature in this period. And in some ways, the Australian bush is just the setting. It's just the background to what's going on uh, in sort of almost interchangeable stories. Like we say, you know, this could happen anywhere, but you've put it against the backdrop of the Australian bush or wherever. And um, in that respect, the landscape is sort of a bit player. Uh, In Gothic, and in horror and especially these um, ghost stories, we see sort of the development of the landscape. And more importantly, um, you know, we talked about earlier how we don't have castles and we yeah. don't have these, the, the infrastructure. Well, anything could be gothic. A shack in the woods can be gothic <laughs> if you make it so. And it absolutely has done it in this case. So, but one of the fascinating things about Australian gothic is how they use lots of aspects of Aboriginal culture and um, belief in spirits, which are intrinsically tied to the environment. Right, of course. Um, so we've got the Bunyip, we've got the Yowie. They're all sort of been twisted and evolved by European writers to sort of sit in as this monster. It's sort of a replacement for the elitist European vampire. Um, <laughs> it's it's a really interesting one how they managed it. Like Rosa Pryor, she wrote a fantastic story called The Bunyip. It's another, it's another Scooby-Doo story. <laughs> But it invokes the idea of and the perception of the bunyip and how these spirits are so intrinsically linked to that environment that, you know, you couldn't imagine one without the other. And I mean, imagine as a European, you first come over or you are living in a city your whole life and then you go out into the bush. The soundscape that you hear, the the noises that you hear are just beyond anything that you would ever have comprehended before, fill you with fear and horror. Even through the day, um, so there's a there's a lot of there's a lot of interesting aspects of how the landscape, the soundscape, everything about Australia can be utilised in these stories. I, I uh, love that. But I, I, just I worked briefly in my youth in the Australian bush, and we used to bring city slickers down, uh, very business types, people who wore suits probably on the weekend as well, and we used to have to describe to them, ask them if they'd ever heard possums going at it in many ways on the roof, <laughs> the roof of a house. And if they hadn't, we had to we had to try and convince them at how terrifying and outrageous it sounded. And I I think about that a lot when I hear them doing it in my own house. If you yep. did not know or what that koalas. was, yeah, oh, horrifying. horrifying. If you heard oh that running God. around I your th- roof, you'd you'd be running out the door and going, "Definitely haunted. I'm leaving." I'm like, obviously, as you could probably tell, I am not full, a full Australian, fifty percent, but not full. Yeah, it's, it was your haircut uh, that I won't gave ever it away. Be able yes, to definitely. Get- yeah. I was going to say, I can't get rid of this accent. Um, I'll try, but I don't think it's going to happen. Um, and when we first came here, we live out, not not in the bush properly, but there's it's not near towns and, and cities and stuff. And there's stuff in the roof <laughs> and there's stuff cawing and squawking and croaking and all night. And it takes you a long time to get used to those sounds. Yeah. Um, and the just the environment in general, it seems so alien to people. Uh, and... Even then they were talking about sort of the openness of this big red landscape, deserts and and sort of bush. English and Europeans, they expected landscape to be lush and green. Yes. And that's just not what you necessarily get here. So it sort of lent itself really well to 
gothic. It might not be a castle, it might not be a ruin, but there's something that sort of touches on and really gets to the bottom of those anxieties that people felt about being a stranger in a strange yeah. land. I think I think it works really well. I have to say that one about the the shack with it turned into the ghost became a parrot and a um and a sheet <laughs> actually did a great job of using that shack did to me feel just like an old castle in a, in a vampire. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I'm going to say movie, but story as well. You can picture the, the lives, can't you? You can yeah. feel it. Um, you, and you know what they're going for as well. Absolutely. Another question. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine that. <laughs> so connections with these sorts of things and what you're noticing in these stories and, and your own research and digging through Trove between what was going on then and today, like are there any strong links where you kind of go, that's just like today and others where you go absolutely unrelatable. Do you have any sort of feeling for that, the patterns that endure and the patterns that we've left behind? Um, yeah, so, I mean, there's there's some similarities that I see and you draw connections. You'd, I wouldn't want to write a journal article about them, um, <laughs> but I, I can see it from sort of an anecdotal perspective. So today, for instance, we have streaming services. Now, don't get me wrong, how we consume streaming content and how um, people consumed serialized novels back in the day, very different. However, there are some really fascinating similarities. So we've got a lot of content being churned out very quickly. We've got certain genres, so like the gothic and true crime and detective, doing really, really well, doing exceptionally well on these sort of platforms. Mm. They were populist genres and streaming services invested in those types of stories today very much like newspaper editors did back then. And then we've also got things like how they disseminate this content. So now we'll, we've gone back to the days of a weekly installment, sort of this drip-fed content, yeah. which is very much how a serialized novel would be drip-fed to audiences. Its purpose is, of course, to bring people back to read it again, make sure they buy the newspaper if they're not bothered about the news, that at least they'll get some entertainment out of yep. it. So all these methods and processes of production and dissemination of this culture, whether it be a TV show or a film today or uh, um, a sort of a literary endeavor back then, very much repackaged and repurposed and obviously based on the economic and practical limitations of the platform and that platform's understanding of its audience as well. So there are some similarities, but I probably wouldn't go too far um, with it, you know. Yeah. So there's so much going on in this database. I mean, so you've, you've really scratched the surface and, and not much more by the sounds of that. That's incredible. Oh, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> and this is why I say it's like a lifetime work. Yeah. Um, for anybody that even delves into it, you know, you can take a theme or an author and just keep on pulling that thread probably for your life. Uh, so we'll see how it goes. What I'm curious to know is what what would you recommend or what would you say to people who've listened to this and gone, this is not enough, now my appetite is whetted and I need more, 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 more. What would you suggest they do next? Like what would they read, listen to, watch? And also how might they help you? Like if they want to contribute somehow or get involved with Trove, can they? I think one of the absolute best things about Trove and about to be continued is that um, – if you like, you can log in, you can set up your account. You don't have to be an academic. You don't have to be in the project team and you can read through these newspapers yourself. And if you could see any um, sort of missing bits or, oh, you spotted a story that uh, you knew was in a paper or you knew was published in Australia and you couldn't find it, 
you can add that in yourself like you, it's an it's a an sort of interactive thing and they want more people to get involved because there's like we say we've only just scratched the surface there's thousands of newspapers thousands of editions out there that need a little bit more love and attention uh, whether that's just neatening up thought sort of the optical character recognition that they've been involved with and and making it make sense or listing it within to be continued um yeah. all of this stuff people can get involved with and i think even just sort of perusing the to be continued database yourself like oh i'm from adelaide i wonder what's in the adelaide observer you could have a look you can check out what happened in uh, 1891 in the adelaide observer and <laughs> it sounds crazy but it's absolutely fascinating the stuff that they brought in so you might look at the fiction, you might go through to be continued and look at the fiction, and then the next article will be European news, and it'll be some absolute <laughs> scandal from the literary world, or uh, like something super dramatic that's happened, yeah. or like a war report or something like that. And I guess that's one thing that we haven't talked about necessarily is sort of the intertex intertextuality angle. You're gonna have to you're gonna have to slow down for me there with the egghead word, the intertextuality. <laughs> It's, it's basically um, how you understand a text ah. by reading other texts. So this fiction is embedded in a newspaper, which right. is full of other bits of text and other bits of writing. So you can't really look at that story in a vacuum. It's within uh, like a yeah, cultural yeah. artifact of its own. And potentially your reading of the newspaper of what that editor decided to put in it can impact how you feel about that story and how what you've taken from that given sort of the circumstances political social and cultural that you can scrape out and the hints and the clues that you can get from what that newspaper is talking about so that is a super complex way of saying read the newspaper have a look have a read because uh, it's just really exciting oh, and the multiple perspectives must you must. You just think you've done it, and then you get someone else to read it, and they see something else, and you think, ah, yay and boo. Yeah, exactly. Because yeah, the perspective differences must bring so much richness to this this research and this whole endeavour. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, like I, I think some of it's really important because you know what we're also looking at is as scholars and as people is yeah. you know who is reading this? Why are they reading it? Um, is it just the fast food of um, and to fill some column inches or is it important in some way or does it bring up some anxieties or some questions or engage with some issues that they would have felt were was important that we might feel is still important? We talked about sort of the um, Indigenous angle and how Aboriginal peoples are treated today. Yeah. This was a period when those relationships were being cemented. You know, why has this happened and how can we stop it and how can we prevent um, those mindsets being entrenched again? Those are all really important questions that looking at things like newspapers can actually help answer. That's delightful. Claire Burnett, thank you so much. Like, awesome conversation. We could have made this a nine-hour episode, but we won't. Maybe maybe we'll do a follow-up one day. But thank you very much. <laughs> oh, thanks, Rod. Really appreciate it. If you'd like to hear the full stories we've spoken about today, we've published a special bonus episode with them read out for you wherever you're listening to this podcast. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please tell someone about it. We'd love as many people as possible to hear these amazing stories. In our next episode... My interest in these historical tales was to go back and look at colonial representations of bushfires and then also read them 
alongside the reporting on bushfires as well to theoretically try and explore to what extent the disaster that we were experiencing was either a continuum or indeed an exceptional event. Thank you for listening. This podcast was produced by Dave Fanner and Miles Martignoni for the Engaged ANU Project. 